The following story shared by a lady by the name of Diane Matthews appeared in Focus on the Family magazine. And here's what she wrote. I was enjoying first grade to the fullest until one day in December when the little girl behind me set it on her desk. It was the tiniest Christmas present imaginable. Less than an inch on each side with white glossy paper tied up with a silver and red cellophane bow. Immediately, I was captivated. I had never seen anything so exquisite. Day after day, the tiny gift caught my eye and my active imagination tried to guess what miniature, what miniature treasure might be inside. It had to be something wondrous, beyond description. I longed for that object with all the power a five-year-old can muster. Finally, I became convinced that it should be mine. I deserved it because I desired it. Since I rode an early bus to school, it was a simple matter to slip into the empty classroom one morning. My hands eagerly tore open the tiny present. Inside I found nothing. Staring at the destruction in my hand, anticipation dissolved into disappointment and confusion. Gradually my stunned mind grasp the fact that the little package had been nothing more than a hollow decoration. I sat at my desk with the empty paper and an empty feeling, sickened by the knowledge of my guilt. Little did I know that morning that this scene would repeat itself many times in my life. As I grew up, the world enticed me with all sorts of shiny, gaily wrapped presents that caught my eye and promised happiness. Too often, when I accepted what the world was offering and tore away the wrappings, my excited expectations were replaced by feelings of emptiness. Diane Matthews fell prey to the common evil within us, the desire to have. We are richer, better fed, more well housed and more educated than any generation in human history. Yet we seem to be none the wiser. Though we have more, we are less content. And of course, our culture 
brilliantly exploits our tendency toward dissatisfaction as it cries to us, use me, buy me, eat me, wear me, try me, drive me, swing me, shoot me, lay on me, watch me, play me, put me on your body, put me in your hair. Did you know that there are over 425 types of shampoos on the market? And they all promise hair contentment. Of course, every car manufacturer promises car contentment. And every cruise line promises vacation contentment. And every cell phone and every computer brand promises technological contentment. <laughs> there are a lot of things in this life that promise contentment. And they're all brightly wrapped and so enticing. But in the end... They're all so terribly empty with respect to bringing any kind of lasting satisfaction. I wonder who among us tonight could honestly say, Brother Prater, I am perfectly content. Most of us, myself included, experience a degree of contentment or discontentment in some form or fashion in some area of our life. Just today, I took a little motorcycle trip with Brother John Farrow. I guess it's a little rough on the old man. He's not here tonight. And Brother Wes... And we were sitting eating lunch, talking about, you know, I'd really like to have. Yeah, that'd be nice to have. Man, maybe one of these days I'm going to have. And I'm riding a Cadillac of a motorcycle. It's a Goldwing with 32,000 miles on it. It's 10 years old. The thing rides like a magic carpet. And I'm like, you know, it'd be nice to have one of the new gold. Ease up, ease up, ease up. Let me finish, the, let me finish my story. <laughs> Stop it. Yes, please. I'm preaching right now. You'll have your time. All right. Mercy. I'm coming over here. You guys give me some respect over here, all right? No, stop it. Clayton, control that woman. But we, we've all got a sense of discontentment within us. Maybe we're discontent with ourselves. Or discontent with our job. 
or our family or our income or our home. I mean, it could be any number of things. Discontentment and her children, ingratitude, complaining and grumbling are serious temptations for God's people. I mean, you would think that in light of God's incredible grace and His ongoing provision, that discontentment really wouldn't bother us. Right? But it does. But we're not the only generation to have to deal with this dreaded ailment. Generations as as far back as the days of Moses found themselves afflicted with the disease of discontent. Invite you to join me tonight in the book of Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. Let me Take a moment to set the stage. God's people, the Jews, had been in captivity for some 400 years. In Exodus chapter 3, we read of God's call to Moses. And his words to him were these, Come now therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. After failing to convince God that that he wasn't the man for the job, Moses set off for Egypt. And what followed, if you know the story, is an amazing act of deliverance. It's, It's a story that concludes with the crossing of the Red Sea in which God rolled back the the waters of of the Red Sea, and he dried up the land so that every one of the Israelites was able to cross safely, even as they were being pursued by Pharaoh's army. And then if you remember, once they got to the other side and Pharaoh's army began making their way through that dried up riverbed, God brought those waters down upon the horses and the riders and the chariots of Pharaoh's army and drowned them all. And then if you'll look at one verse above Exodus chapter 15, it says this, And Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians. And the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and His servant Moses. Chapter 15, Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, And spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. And for the next 20 verses, Moses and the children of Israel sing the praises of God. I mean, it's a glorious song. 
I would love to know the, know the tune of that. I've always wondered, Brother David, when I, when I read of they sang, I've, I've always wondered, what was the tune? I mean, that is some weird timing right there. I'd love to know how, how those songs went. But look down at verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea and they went out into the wilderness of Shur and they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured, mark that word, they murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them, and said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and wilt do that which is right in his sight, and wilt give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. And they came to Elam, where were twelve wells of water, and threescore and, and ten or seventy palm trees. And they encamped there by the waters. So once out of Egypt, God led his people to a place called Marah, and there was water there. But it wasn't fit to drink. And so the people began to murmur, began to complain, began to gripe. Of course, Moses went to God for help and God instructed him to cast a tree into the waters. And Moses did what God told him to do. and The bitter waters became sweet. After that, God led them to a place called Elam where there was an abundance of water. As a matter of fact, there were 12 wells of water. How many tribes of Israel were there? 12. So every tribe got their own well. And there were 70 palm trees. There were 70 elders of Israel. So every one of those elders got to kick back in a hammock between palm trees. I don't know how it was. But the point is God took care of his people. Thankful, right? <laughs> no. Filled with gratitude overwhelmed at God's goodness, blessed by God's grace, right? Wrong. Within this narrative, which continues through chapter 16 and into chapter 17 till about verse 7, the word murmur or a form of that word appears ten times. Look at verse 1 of chapter 16. And they took their journey from Elam. And all the congregation of the children of Israel came under the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month, after their departing out of the land of Egypt. So they're 45 days into their newfound freedom after being in captivity for 400 years. Verse 2, and the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured. There's that word again. Murmured. They're 45 days into freedom and they've already 
They've already murmured twice against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Verse 3, and the children of Israel said unto them, Would, think about this. Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the flesh pots and we did eat bread to the full. For ye have brought us forth into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So first they didn't have water, so God gave them water. They needed food, and you know what God did? He provided them with a daily happy hour filled with quail and manna. In other words, God met their needs. God took care of his people. Happy, happy, happy. Right? Nope. Chapter 17. You tracking with me? Verse 1, all the congregation children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeyings according to the commandment of the Lord and pitched in Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did chide, just another way of saying they contended, they murmured, they griped, they challenged Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? You know what God did at this point? He sent Moses to this rock called Horeb. And he had him strike the rock with his staff. And in yet another miracle, Water poured out of that rock to quench the thirst of all the people of Israel. Now here's the deal. Here are the children of Israel. And even though God continued to meet all their needs, all they could do was grumble and complain and test his love and grace and patience. They never seem to be content in spite of everything that God did. We live in a culture today where we perceive ourselves as being entitled to having all our wants and desires fulfilled as part of our American birthright. And when that doesn't happen, we become victims. Pastor Tyler preached on victimhood in, in his study from 1 Samuel. And we consider ourselves victims and we whine and we complain and we grumble and if we can find a way to blame someone else for our inconvenience then we sue them <laughs> what's sad about all of this 
and I'm not, I'm not being mean to that. I'm just, I think, stating the fact that Christians are some of the worst whiners in all the world. I'm talking about, listen to this, I'm talking about people whose sins have been forgiven. I'm talking about people who by the good grace of God have been saved and will never spend a moment in hell. Who will spend their whole life in heaven. Yet somehow, they still manage to find something to cry about. When it comes to discontentment, this isn't the message, we'll get there in a minute, but when it comes to discontentment, we can make one of three choices. Choice number one, we can follow the example of children of Israel and, and live in a continual state of discontent and disappointment with God. Which in reality is what contentment is, discontentment is. It's really dis disappointment in God. Moses makes that clear. If you study, uh, go back and read more carefully these, these uh, chapters, 56 and 70. Moses makes the point on a number of occasions. Listen, your beef isn't with me. Your beef is with God. You're not disappointed in me. You're disappointed in God. And that's really what discontentment is. That's one choice we can make. I think you would agree with me. That's not a very good one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 10, as Paul looked back on the experience, this experience in the history of Israel, he says that God finally got tired of their griping and complaining. And if you remember, he destroyed all of them. Almost all of them. They never got to see the promised land. They missed out. On God's best for them. The second choice we can make is to buy into the culture's lie that contentment comes through new things and new experiences and new jobs and new relationships and new this and new that. I mean, you've, you've seen the people who have chosen this route. They are constantly giving themselves over to an unending quest for little moments of happiness. They buy things and they go places and they start new hobbies and they bounce from job to job and relationship to relationship. They just go wherever their latest trivial pursuit takes them. In reality, they live their lives on a treadmill that leads to nowhere. You know, that's one of the biggest bummers of walking three miles on a treadmill. You don't get anywhere. And Jenny, it doesn't matter how great the scenery is on the screen, does it? You're still right there. Still right there on lilac. <laughs> the third choice we can make is what I'll call a commitment to contentment. When we make this choice, we decide to follow our Heavenly Father. And over time, we learn to find our contentment. Listen, we learn to find our contentment in Him. 
Well, what does that look like? What does it mean to find our contentment in the Lord on a day-to-day and week-to-week basis of going to work and raising a family and providing a living and being involved in ministry? I believe we can find the answer in the, the narrative of Exodus chapters 15, 16, and 17. First of all, when we make a commitment to contentment, we realize God's loving purpose for us. The whole reason God called the Jews out of Egypt was because He loved them. And His purpose was for them to love Him back and to serve Him. Go back to chapter 15, if you will. Look at verse 25. And he cried unto the Lord, and this is Moses, and he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for him a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. And he said, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Note that at Mara. God was proving them or God was testing them. They had just finished singing this, this incredible song of praise in, in which they exalted His name and they acknowledged His greatness. But now God wanted to see how committed they were to following Him. And in all honesty, that's, that's not a correct statement. God already knew how committed they were. He wanted them to know how committed they were or perhaps weren't. He wanted to see if they were more about being free or the one who made them free. We know from passages of Scripture like Romans 8, 28 and 29 that God's loving purpose for us is to to mature spiritually by being conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul said, And we know that all things work together for good to them that, that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. Granted, things may not be as comfortable as you would like for them to be right now. But what if God's purpose, listen to this, what if God's purpose for you is less about your personal or financial or relational comfort at this stage and more about your spiritual growth? Do you remember what happened to the Jews after they left the uncomfortable surroundings of Mara? They came to Elam, a place of rest and satisfaction. You know how far Elam was from Mara? By some estimations, it was as close as five miles. Just over the next hill. Just a little walk from here to the state line west was the place of rest and satisfaction. 
And I would encourage you tonight by saying this, your Elam may be closer than you think. But you'll never know until you learn to content yourself in God's plan for your life right here, right now. When we make a commitment to contentment, we realize God's loving purpose for us. Secondly, we remember God's loving provision. Time after time after time, God provided for His people. We've seen that. For 40 years, He gave them meat and bread and water. He supplied their needs. We we read in one passage that their shoes never wore out. Their clothes never wore out. Granted, God may not give us what we want, But he always gives us what we need. Like any good parent, God knows that that giving children everything they want is not necessarily good for them. In fact, One of the best ways to create a grumbling, complaining, discontented adult is for a parent to give that person whatever he or she wants when they're a child. If you've ever been to Walmart lately, there are going to be some monster adults. Can I help you out here? God doesn't owe us a thing. Did you hear me? God does not owe us anything. He doesn't owe us a bigger house, a newer car, a better job, an easier life, or anything else. And as long as we're holding on to some sense of entitlement, listen to me, we will never be content. God has already given us the greatest gift possible in Jesus. Hey, let's be thankful and rejoice for crying out loud. Look at chapter 16, verse 32. And Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord commandeth. Fill an omer of it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread wherewith I have fed you in the wilderness when I brought you forth from the land of Egypt. And Moses said unto Aaron, take a pot and put an omer full of manna therein and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. And the Lord commanded Moses So Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. What was God doing? What was God doing when he had them gather up some of the the manna? If you're not sure what manna is, it was a a bread-like wafer that tasted like it had honey on it. What was God doing when when he had them gather some of that up and put it in a jar inside the Ark of the Covenant? He wanted them to always remember and be thankful 
for his loving provision. There have been times when I've been out and about in our community and and other times when I've been out and about with other pastors in their communities and they want to take me to, to this one of their church members' businesses and without fail they'll point to a dollar bill on the wall. You've seen them. They'll point to a dollar bill on the wall that says, I, I put that there just to remind me of where I started. And where God has brought me to. And that's what the manna was about. It was about God's people remembering how God took care of them and provided for them in the wilderness. Listen, if you want to learn to be content, start acknowledging what you do have and quit complaining about what you don't have. Start acknowledging what God has done and quit griping about what he hasn't done. Ingratitude is a sign of immaturity. It's also a sign, listen to this, it's a sign of pride. As someone so aptly put, a proud man is seldom a grateful man. For he never thinks he gets as much as he deserves. Shame on us. If we got what we deserved, we'd be in hell. Amen. Here's a thought for you. You take approximately 23,000 breaths every day. But when was the last time you thank God for even one of them. And we got some medical people here tonight. I think they would vouch for this. Do you realize that the process of inhaling oxygen and exhaling carbon dioxide is a very complicated respiratory task that requires physiological precision? And it's got to happen at just the right time and just the right way. And we tend to be real good, real good at thanking God for the things that take our breath away. And rightly so. I remember the first time and only time I ever stepped to the edge of the Grand Canyon. Literally, I, my reaction was this. It was amazing. It literally took my breath away. And we're so good, and again, rightly so, for thanking God for the things that take our breath away. But maybe we should thank Him for every other breath as well. You want, money, you want to make a commitment to contentment? Remember God's loving provision and thank Him for it. And then recognize God's loving presence. As you read earlier in Exodus 17, the children of Israel were once again complaining of lack of water. So God, instead of leading them to, to pools of water, He does something really miraculous to get their attention. He has Moses strike a rock with his staff and the rock brings forth water. 
And you know what? They still had the audacity to ask. Is the Lord among us or not? Now, before we chide them too severely, let's be honest. How many times have we gotten so, so caught up in our own circumstances while in the wilderness of life that we felt like we were all alone. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. When in reality, come on, when in reality, we've not been alone. Not one moment. For those of you who may find yourself there right now, listen to me tonight. God's not forgotten you. God knows where you're at. He knows every situation, every circumstance. He, know, he knows. He's not abandoned you. And what we re read in, in, in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, he said, Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he, God, hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. So listen, even if you, 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 you end up losing everything and all you have left is God, I think you'll be all right. Can I get a witness right there? I think you'll be okay. I want to close with a, a statement made by Nancy Lee DeMoss, and I've adapted it just a, a little bit to fit more closely with this message, but the power of her words are not diminished. Listen, she said, contentment is a choice. If we fail to choose it, by default, we choose discontentment. And once allowed into the heart, discontentment does not come by itself but with other seedy companions that only succeed in stealing joy. To not choose contentment is more costly than we usually realize. When we do choose a lifestyle of heartfelt, humble contentment, we are mindful of the benefits received from our gracious Savior and those He has placed around us. By intentionally choosing to be content, bitterness and entitlement are replaced with joy and the humble realization of just how undeserving we really are. I'd encourage you tonight to make a commitment to contentment by realizing God's loving purpose by remembering God's loving provision and by recognizing God's loving presence